I want you to open your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 2. That's where we're going to start tonight. Back in the beginning when God first created mankind, set us here on this earth. And I want to read beginning in verse 18 down through verse 20 before we pause for prayer. So Genesis 2, 18 through 20. Please follow as I read. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather again tonight. We ask you to meet with us tonight and all through the balance of this week that we could learn, that we could be instructed and challenged uh, through thy word and by thy spirit. We pray that he might bring truth home in a very personal way to our hearts, that where we need to be changed, that you would change us and we'd have a willingness to become all that you want us to be in our marriages and in our families. And we th thank you so much for it. We pray and ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me set the scene for us a little bit as to where we are in time as we've read these few verses from Genesis 2. The Bible tells us that God took of the dust of the ground and formed, fashioned a man breathed into him the breath of life, and that man became a living soul. And now it is as if Adam stands before God as the crown of his creation, again, made in his own image and likeness. Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, then tells us of an observation that God made, tells us something that God said. And so verse 18 it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. So here's what God does. He creates Adam. He has Adam standing before him. And then he makes this observation. Now it isn't good for this man to be alone. And I am going to make and help meet for him. Now, if we understand verse 18, folks, it'll take us a long way into understanding God's intent and plan for marriage. Because God said for this man, he was going to make, and look at the term, and help meet for him. Now, the term help means helper. And actually, there's only one word in the Hebrew for help meet. But the reason the term meet is put in there by the translators is because of what happens in verses 19 and 20. And the picture that we are given in verses 19 and 20 is this, that God seemingly brings the rest of his creation before him and before Adam. And there is again an observation of these things. Verse 19 says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam 
to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. Now the fact that it says for Adam there was not found a helper seems to be that God is observing all the rest that he created, the fowl of the air, the beast of the field. He looks at everything. He tells Adam, now you give a name to everything, and as everything else that God had created comes by, there is nothing that is suitable to be a helper to this man. Now I think a part of what's involved in there is a reminder from God to us of the great distinction that exists between us and the entire animal kingdom. And you know we live in a day when that line is trying to be obliterated by many. They want us to think that we're nothing more than highly evolved animals. But listen, there's a great difference, folks, between the animal kingdom and us. We must never forget it. You know, when an animal dies, it is dead and gone. It is non-existent. There is nothing else left. Sometimes if we have pets, you know, we try to encourage our children and, and we might say, well, now listen, honey, you know, uh, your little doggy died, but he went to doggy heaven. No, he didn't. Little Fido is kaput. There's nothing left. He's gone. But you know something? When you die, you're going to exist somewhere forever. Incredible. Heaven or hell, there's no other option. But what a difference between us and this animal kingdom. And so God, again, creates Adam, made in his image and likeness, breathed into him the breath of life. He becomes this living soul, a being who will exist somewhere forever. And God looks at all the rest of his creation and says, there's nothing here that can serve as this helper. And so verse 18 lets us know that God wanted a helper for the man and a helper who was just right for him. Now, ladies, God then caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, removed from his side a rib, used that rib to fashion Eve, the woman, brought her to the man, and the man accepted her from the hand of God to be his wife. The woman then was made by God to be the helper. The man was created, as we've already taken note in our series, the man was created to be the head, the leader of the home. And therein is the balance. The man is the head, the lady is the helper. Now let me say this. Sometimes a lady might say, well, you know, if I've been created to be the helper, how am I supposed to help? What's my role? Where do I really fit in? And men, I think many times our ladies struggle with that because we, as men, have not come to grips with what life is really all about. Because if life is all about the job out there and how much money we earn and the car we drive and the house in which we live and the retirement program, if that's what life is all about for us, then it's no wonder our ladies struggle with how they're to be the helper. But if a man will come to grips with the fact that you and I have been created to serve the living God, that's why we're here, to serve Him, to walk with Him, to commune with Him, 
to see a family grow up, to also know Him and love Him and serve Him. When that is what is life all about for us, then our wife can look and say, hey, I can be a part of that. I can help with that. I can walk with my husband as he serves God. And so there's the beginning. As God put us on this earth and began marriage and life for the human race. Now chapter 3 of Genesis records for us the next major event in human history and that is the fall of mankind into sin. The serpent comes, Adam and Eve are tempted and they sin. And the response of God to the sin of man is to pronounce a curse, a curse on the serpent a curse on the woman, a curse on the man, and a curse on the earth. Now because we're talking about the ladies tonight, I want to call your attention to Genesis 3.16 because here is the curse that God pronounced on the woman because of sin. Genesis 3.16, notice what it says. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. There's the first part of the curse. God said to the woman, because of sin, here's the pronouncement, here's the judgment. It's going to be difficult for you as a woman to bring forth children into this world. Now God had said upon creation, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And I think we could understand that it would have been a relatively easy experience for the lady if sin had not come into the picture. But sin comes into the picture and there is a pronouncement of a curse and God says it'll be a very difficult thing to conceive and to bring forth children. And any lady who has brought forth children into this world would say, yes, that is a very difficult experience. Now there's a second part of the curse. I want you to look at verse 16. Second part of the verse says this. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now keep your eyes fixed on that verse because I want to read it again. I want to read the second part of the verse, and this time I'm going to read it putting in the meaning or the implication of the term desire. See it? Listen as I read. And thy desire shall be to rule thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now you might look at that and say, Brother Griffith, I'm not sure you read that right. Yeah, I did. There's about a dozen words in the Old Testament, Hebrew words, that are translated by the English word desire. The term that is translated in this particular verse, Genesis 3.16, is found only three times in the Old Testament. And the idea of this term is not that the lady would say to her husband, Oh honey, I just want you to know that my desire is for whatever you want. That's not it. This term is a term that means to desire to get at or desire to get over. And what we're being told here is that the woman who has been created to be the helper because of sin in her life will now struggle with that role that God gave her and in fact because of sin will desire instead of being the helper to in fact maybe be the head. 
Her battle, the Christian wife's battle, is with her will. That's the battleground. That's the struggle. Let me show you that same term in one of the other places where it's found. Again, only found three times in the Bible. But a second place it is found is right in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. I want you to turn over there and let me again introduce the context of the discussion here. In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God. And you'll remember that Abel's offering is received. It is a blood sacrifice. God accepts it. Cain's offering is the crops of the field. And God says, no, I will not accept it. And so we read in verse 5, But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? Now verse 7 is the key verse. God said, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? Cain, if you bring the right offering, bring me a blood offering. You'll be accepted. But, he said, and if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire. Now he said, Cain, look, if you bring the right offering, you'll be accepted. But if you, if you won't bring the right offering, then I want you to know something. I want you to know that sin is lying right at the door of your tent. And sin is desiring to get you. That's the idea. Unto thee shall be his desire. Sin is desiring to conquer you. And of course, Cain did not bring the right offering. And he ended up in great great trouble. But I want you to understand this curse because for the Christian wife, that's the battleground. That's the struggle. Submitting to the headship of her husband. Now we're going to look at two passages in the New Testament tonight. Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. And I want you to open first of all to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 in both of these passages, the Apostle Paul and then the Apostle Peter are going to discuss family and marriage. And I think it is interesting and very significant that when these two apostles begin to discuss marriage, that first of all, they speak to the woman first. And then you'll find this, that when they speak to the woman, they both begin with the exact same challenge. We're going to see that in just a moment. Now, before we do that, though, let me just ask you a question. How many of you here tonight have what I would call a noted Bible? You have a Bible that has various notes in it. Raise, just raise your hand so I get it. Okay. I, I wonder how many of you have a note between verses 20 and 21. Would you raise your hand? Okay. Some of you do. Now, I want to tell you why I bring that up. Because I want you to look at verse 21. Verse 21 says this, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. There is a teaching that is becoming prevalent today. First of all, it showed up in what we call New Evangelicalism. And most recently, I saw an article by a fundamentalist writer. And here's what they said. They said, the Bible teaches in marriage dual submission. 
that the wife is supposed to submit to the husband and the husband is supposed to submit to the wife. And, and I want you to know something. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now, let's look at something. We look at verse 21. See the end of the verse. What is the punctuation mark you have at the end of verse 21? Just yell it out. A period. Now go back to verse 20. What do you have there? Semicolon. How about verse 19? How about verse 18? Now verse 17. Period. Now what that means in very simple terms is that verse 17, concluding with a period, means a sentence just ended. And then a new sentence begins with verse 18. Verse 18 ends with a semicolon, so the sentence goes on. Verse 19, a semicolon, the sentence still goes on. Verse 20, a semicolon, the sentence still goes on. Verse 21 has that period again. In other words, verses 18, 19, 20, and 21 are all one sentence. So verse 21 begins with those, or belongs with those verses. And what are those verses talking about? Being filled with the Spirit, right? Verse 18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19 tells us about that, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Verse 20, giving thanks always for all things. And verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. In other words, that's telling you and me as brothers and sisters in Christ... That to be filled with the Spirit is going to be manifested in these areas. But listen, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. It's not talking about marriage. It's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. It is not until verse 22 that Paul begins his discussion on marriage and family. And verse 22 begins with this statement. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now again, remember this. Paul's going to talk about family, and he talks to the lady first. And the first thing he says to the woman is, Wife, submit yourself to your husband. That's interesting. Why doesn't he say, Now, wife, you make sure you make good meals for your husband. Why doesn't he say, now, wife, make sure you keep the house clean? Or wife, make sure you do the laundry? Or wife, whatever. Why does he say, first thing, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands? You know why? Genesis 3, 16. That's why. Because that's the area of battle. That's the area of struggle. If we get over to 1 Peter, we're not going to get there for a moment, but when we get over to 1 Peter 3, and Peter begins to talk about family and husbands, wives, he'll say this, Likewise ye wives be in subjection unto your own husbands. And we would say, Peter, why? Why'd you say that first? Why didn't you talk about some of these other things? And the reason, folks, is Genesis 3, 16. Because this matter of submission is the battleground. That's what gals struggle with. Now, as I said uh, last night, I don't think ladies understand what submission's all about. And so we want to make sure we understand it tonight. But let's stay right here in Ephesians 5 before we go to 1 Peter 3. Verse 22 again says this, Wives, 
Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Verse 23 tells us why. For, or that could be rendered because, the husband is the head of the wife. Now, it doesn't say the husband ought to be the head of the wife, does it? No. It says the husband is the head of the wife. And then look at the parallel that is established for us. Even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, there it is. Wife, you submit yourself to your husband just like the church is subject unto Christ. Because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Now, you know, those who advocate dual submission, I don't think would say, well, you know, I think as the church subjects itself to Christ, I think that Christ ought to also subject himself to the church. No, obviously not. Submit yourself, subject yourself to your husband's headship. Because God appointed him to be the head. Therefore, we read in verse 24, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. That's what God says. Now, folks, sometimes people say something like this. Well, you know, I know we don't do it exactly the way the Bible says, but, but we're getting by, we're making it, and I want you to know something. You can never have the blessing of God in your marriage and in your home until your home operates the way God intended it to operate. Until the man is, in a practical way, the head and the wife is submitted to that headship, you are going to miss what God has for your home. Just that simple. God is not going to do it our way. God's going to do it his way. Now turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, because Peter's going to address the same thing, but Peter is going to take us into much more detail, and we need to understand this matter as clearly as we can. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Peter says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Now, Peter's going to tell us the same thing that Paul said. Be in subjection to your husband. But he's going to say this. He's going to say, wife, I want you to understand why. I want you to understand what this is all about. You know, when Peter writes, Peter does what I think good preachers do. A good preacher prepares a sermon, and when he has the sermon all ready, he kind of reviews it, and he says, now, you know, if I preach this, maybe I'll create some questions in people's minds. And so he anticipates the questions that might come up in people's minds. Then he works through his sermon again, and he tries to answer all the questions. So hopefully when the sermon is over, the people go out with their questions answered and not go out wondering, why do you say that? Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Peter says, you know, if I tell wives to be in subjection to their husbands, there's going to be some questions. And here are the questions he anticipates. He anticipates that some lady might raise her hand and say something like this. Peter, hey, I want to ask you a question. 
You just said, wife, be in subjection to your husband. Now, what if my husband is not saved? Do I have to be in subjection to him? And Peter's answer is going to be, yes, you do. Then another lady might raise her hand and say, well, Peter, I want to ask you something. What if my husband is saved, or at least he says he is, but he doesn't live for God? He doesn't read the Bible, doesn't pray, doesn't come to church. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word. You see, there's that man who's not saved, doesn't obey the word of God. Or he's saved, but he's not living for Christ. He doesn't obey the word of God. Peter says, well, you be in subjection that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word, what's the next two words? Be one. You see that? Be one. Peter says, Christian lady, I want you to understand something. The whole purpose of this thing of subjection is that we can win that man. Is he not saved? Peter says, well, I want you to be in subjection to him because we want to win him. Is he a man who is saved but he's not living for Christ? Not the man that he ought to be? He says, well, Christian wife, you be in subjection to that man because we want to win this guy. Now, ladies, that's what subjection is all about. The idea is this. Dr. Walter Freeman, who used to speak on family, would say this to the Christian wife. Listen to it. He'd say, Christian wife, you make him happy. God will make him holy. Would you think about that? You make him happy. God will make him holy. The challenge of being in subjection is something like this. God is saying, Christian lady, will you get in subjection to this man? Let him be the head so that I can begin to deal with him and make him into the man that I want him to be. You make him happy. I will make him holy. What a challenge. Now, would you look at this? Would you notice where it says, they also may without the word be one? Now, the earlier reference to the word where they don't obey the word, that's a reference to the word of God. But guess what it's talking about when it says without the word, we're going to win them. Guess what word that is? That's the talking of the wife. You know what wives tend to do? Wives tend to look at their husbands and say, and by the way, fellas, you ought to take note of this, because most Christian wives feel just like this. They say, I wish my husband was more spiritual. Did you know that? Most Christian wives look at their husbands and say, I wish my husband was more spiritual. But ladies, here's where you get into trouble. You think, now how can I make him more spiritual? That's where you get into trouble. And that's why the warning is, he doesn't obey the word, but without the word, without your words, is the idea. God says, we want to win him. 
And the last part of the verse says this, by the conversation of the wives. Now that word conversation is an old English word that means behavior or conduct or manner of life. Peter says, hey, we're going to win them by your life, not by your talking. Now you see, imagine this. Imagine a Christian wife who is just wishing her husband would have devotions with the kids. You know, Christian wives would wish that. And so this Christian wife says, boy, I wish my husband would start having devotions with the kids. And so she gets an idea. I think I'll just help him. And so she goes to the Christian bookstore and she buys a devotional book and she brings it home and she gives it to her husband. She says, you know, honey, you know, I've been wanting you to have devotions with the kids. And so I was out today and I bought you this book. Now, why don't you read this book and get all brushed up on these things and maybe you could start sitting down and having devotions with the kids. Now, if the lady battles with her will, ladies, do you know what a man battles with in his life? Do you know your husband's biggest battleground in his life? It's his pride. You ever hear that reference to the male ego? That's the man's problem. He's got a pride problem. Ladies have a will problem. And so the wife says, well, I'm going to help this man. I'm going to give him this book, and I'm going to say, hey, look, why don't you start having devotions with the kids? So she says this, and you know what happens when a man hears that? Here's how a man reacts. Well, I probably ought to be having devotions with the kids. But if I start having devotions now with her giving me that book, she's going to be sure that the only reason I'm having devotions is because she got me the book. And I can't let her think that I'm going to have devotions because she's pressured me into it. Therefore, I can't have devotions with the kids. You know, that's how men think. Well, wives don't give up easily. And so what happens is, you know, a day or two later, a wife comes over to her husband. She says, now, honey, uh, uh, have you read that book yet? No, I haven't. Another couple days, she goes, honey, have you gotten into that devotional book yet? No, I haven't. A couple days later, honey, listen, when are we going to start? What about that book? That's a good book. I got you. Why don't we have devotions? He says, okay. Okay, we're going to have devotions. Kids, get your Bible. Get out of here. Sit down. We're going to start having devotions. We're going to have devotions because your mother wants us to have devotions. Now sit down. And so he has devotions. Now I want to ask you something, ladies. Do you now have the man that you want? No, you don't. Now what you have is what we call a hand-pecked devotion giver. But you do not have a man of God. And what you really want is a man of God. And what God is trying to say to you is this. You can't make him a man of God. Only God can make him a man of God. You work on making him happy. Clean the house, fix the meals, do the laundry, do the things that will be of encouragement to him. Be a good wife. Let God make him holy. Now one of the worst things a Christian wife can do is to make her husband answerable to her. You have to let your husband be answerable to God, not you. And you might think, oh, I don't know if I could do that. Listen, your husband will have a greater battle trying to get around God 
than he will trying to get around you. And you need to pull away and let him get before God. Let God deal with them. You stop dealing with them. Now, let's look at the next couple of verses because these verses become so interesting as Peter is trying to teach ladies this critical lesson. Now, notice how he, he almost backs into the challenge of verse 4 by what he gives us in verse 3. But he's giving us an important lesson. Look at verse 3. He says of the Christian wife, who's adorning? Interesting little word. That's the word cosmos, which usually in the Bible is translated world. But here it's translated adorning, having to do with that which is seen, that which stands out about you as a lady. It says this, who's adorning? The thing that stands out about you or the thing by which you are known. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Now, what's Peter trying to say? I think you know there are some Christian groups who say this to ladies. You should never do anything with your hair. Just leave it long, straight, hanging down the back. Don't ever do anything with your hair. You're not allowed to wear any jewelry, so on. You've heard those groups. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter is saying this. He's saying that this is not what you should be known by. That's what he's saying. Now, let me illustrate. We get into new churches almost every week, and uh, you can imagine this kind of thing happening. Somebody says to us, uh, uh, now listen, on Tuesday night, uh, you're going to Mrs. Smith's for dinner. Do you know who Mrs. Smith is? Well, no, I don't know who Mrs. Smith is. We just got here. I, I haven't gotten her. No, her. Well, listen, Mrs. Smith, uh, she's the lady with the hair. Oh, oh, the lady with the hair? Oh, is that Mrs. Smith, the lady with the hair? Oh, yeah, I know who she is. Yeah, the lady with the hair. What Peter is saying is, you don't want to be that lady. See, that's the idea. Who's adorning? The thing by which you are known, the thing that stands out about you. Let it not be the plaiting, which means the curling or folding or bending or whatever. Let it not be what you do with your hair. That's not what you're supposed to be known by. Or he says, the next part of the verse, who's adorning, uh, let it not be the wearing of gold. You shouldn't be known by your jewelry, which is interesting in today's society, isn't it? Because there's a lot of people who are wearing the craziest jewelry in the world. Hey, do you know her? She's the one with about six of them on her ear. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. She's the one. You don't want to be that lady. Now, Peter isn't saying that you can't do something with your hair. Peter isn't saying that you can't wear jewelry. Peter isn't saying that uh, those things are eliminated. He is saying that's not what you are supposed to be known by. Now we can prove that, I think, very simply by looking at that verse in a little more detail. For instance, when it says, who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair. Now, he's not saying you cannot curl your hair. Because if he was, then when we get to the next little phrase, and the wearing of gold, he would be saying, and you can't wear jewelry. But if that's what he was saying, then look at the next one. 
And he isn't saying that, is he? No. He's not saying you can't curl your hair and you can't wear jewelry, or he'd also be saying, and you can't wear clothes. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying, that's not what you ought to be known by as a Christian lady. What should you be known by? Verse 4 is what you should be known by. Verse 4 says this, but let it be. In other words, the thing that stands out about you as a Christian lady, let it be the hidden man of the heart. In that which is not corruptible, all the outward things are, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Is that your testimony tonight as a Christian wife and Christian lady? Is that what you're known by? When somebody talks about you and they say, oh, oh, you'll know her because she has a meek and quiet spirit. Now sometimes a lady says, hey, well, I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them ladies. You're supposed to be. You're supposed to be. And the reason that's so important, ladies, is this. God appointed your husband to be the head of your home. You know what that means? That means there will be times when he will feel convicted of God to make certain decisions, to take your family in certain directions, to make certain choices with which you may not agree. And that's when you must be in submission and manifest the meek and quiet spirit, which says, I do not agree, but I can accept it because God appointed you head. I believe in a good Christian marriage that 95% of the time, and that's an arbitrary figure, but 95% of the time a husband and wife are in agreement. They both love the Lord. They both want the best for their family, want the best for their kids, trying to serve God. 95% of the time they say, hey, we're in this together. But it's that 5% of the time when the wife says, I think we ought to do this, and the husband says, but I think we ought to do this that it is critical for you as a Christian wife to submit and let your husband stand or fall before God instead of standing or falling before you. God wants to direct families through godly men. Now, I had a lady say this to me one time. She said, you know, I, I would be in subjection to my husband if he would do things the way I wanted them to. But you see, that's the point, isn't it? It is not that this man is supposed to be what you want him to be. It is that this man will become what God wants him to be. And only God can make that happen. And the whole challenge and message of subjection is this. God says, Christian lady, get out of the way. Put yourself into subjection to your husband. Get out of the way so that I can win him, so that I can deal with him, so that I can make him be the man I want him to be. Does that mean he'll fail? Yes. Does it mean he'll make mistakes? Yes. Because sometimes that's how we learn our greatest lessons. But the challenge for the wife is to say, okay, he may do things wrong, he may make mistakes, but that's between him and God. You can make an appeal. You can give him counsel. You can give him your advice. You can say, honey, here's what I think. 
But then you have to back away. And you have to say, okay, honey, that's between you and the Lord. Now, I want you to know this. And, you know, we can have fun with these things, but I want you to know something. This is about as serious as we can get for a Christian family. But I want you to know that Peter, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, says to ladies, I understand this is not an easy thing. And it isn't. Let's see what he says as he takes us on in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, Peter says, For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who, look at it, trusted in God. That term trusted could actually be rendered with the concept of hope. They hoped in God. They trusted in God. A Christian wife says, well, can I trust my husband? Not necessarily so, because he's going to make mistakes. He's going to do some things that may not work out right. So the holy women of old trusted in God. And that's what you have to do. Now, while they trusted in God, it says, they adorned themselves. And that's taking us back to the meek and quiet spirit. While they trusted in God, they begged God for that meek and quiet spirit. That strong inner person that said, hey, I don't have to have it my way. I can in peace rest in my husband's leadership. And then it says, lastly, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Now, there's the holy woman of old. There's a lady who, again, she trusted in God, she had the meek and quiet spirit, and she lived in subjection to her husband. Now, verse 6. It says, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, when we think of Abraham, we think a man of great faith, the father of the Hebrew nation. But as a husband, he made some great mistakes. As a husband, he said to his wife at one point, there is famine here in the land of promise. We will go down into Egypt and hope to find things better. And so they get down into Egypt, and then he turns to his wife, and what does he say? He said, now, Sarah, listen, these guys might kill me if they know that you're my wife. They might kill me and take you. So I want you to tell them that you are my sister. Don't tell them. You're my wife. Now, Sarah might have looked at Abraham and said, okay, great leader, great protector. Boy, he failed her, didn't he? He put her at risk. But Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. What did Sarah really do? She trusted in God. And when Sarah's husband put her at risk, God stepped in and took care of Sarah. God came to Pharaoh and in a night vision said, you touch that woman, you're dead. That's pretty good protection. When she remained in subjection, God stepped in to protect her. That's your challenge. Now, verse 6 goes on. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, now, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, 
and are not afraid with any amazement. Amazement speaks of terror, fright. And here's what Peter says to the Christian wife. He says, now look, you will be like a daughter to Sarah if you will submit yourself to your husband's leadership and fight off the fear that sometimes virtually terrorizes you when you think about living in subjection to your husband's headship. And so what Peter says to the Christian wife is this, I know why you struggle with subjection. You are afraid. You're afraid. I want to say something to us men who are married here tonight. Isn't it a tragic thing that your wife, my wife, might be sitting here tonight inside saying, I am afraid to let this man lead. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what he might do. I'm afraid of where he would take us as a family. I'm afraid of what he might do financially. I'm afraid of what he might do with our kids. I'm afraid. And understand that often out of that fear, a woman rises up and says, I am going to get into this thing. I'm going to help make the decisions. I'm going to call the shots. I'm not going to let this man do it his way. And dear lady, when you do that, you are creating great, great problems. And you have to fight off that fear, put your trust in God, and submit yourself to your husband's leadership because God appointed him to be the head. But Peter understands. But Peter does not say this to the Christian wife. Hey, listen, even though your husband might be a disaster, just wait until he becomes what he ought to be and then submit. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say submit to a godly man. doesn't say submit to a wise man. He says submit to your husband. Your husband. Now, man, that ought to challenge us. We ought to look at our family and we ought to look at life and say, you know something, I'm going to rise up and be a man of God. I want to make it as easy as possible for my wife to submit to me. I don't want to do dumb things. I want to be a man of prayer. I want my wife to look at me and know that if I'm making a decision, I have been before the Lord. I have been in the Word of God. I have sought good counsel. That's the man I want to be. But wife, your challenge is to submit whether he is that man or not. Your challenge is submit. Now God says, submit so I can win him. Now God can do whatever he wants to do, I'll guarantee you that. But the reason he puts that in the scriptures is because he is saying this to the Christian wife. He's saying, you know, as long as you are vying for leadership, I'm going to have trouble getting that man to stand or fall before me. I'm going to have trouble getting that man to become what I want him to be because you are in the way. Get out of the way and let me deal with him. Now again, many times a Christian wife says, well, I know we're not doing it God's way, but we're, we're making it. And I want you to know you're not. You're not making it. Your home is not what God wants it to be. The blessings that God would want to give you are not coming because God is going to work through the authority that he has appointed. So Christian wife, what a challenge. Submit yourself. Something you have to do. 
a decision you have to make. Submit yourself unto your own husband. And as Paul put it in Ephesians 5, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Could I challenge you tonight? I challenge you as a Christian wife to come to grips with what it means to really be a godly woman. Because to be a godly person means to give God his rightful place in your life. To be a godly wife means you have to come to grips with God's order for the family. And you have to say, okay, I will fight off the fear. I will enlarge my trust in God. And I'm going to submit myself to my husband's leadership. And I'm going to beg God to go ahead and make him the man that God wants him to be. But I will submit. Would you do that? You might sit here and say, well, I don't know if I'm going to do with that. Because how do I know what my husband's going to do tomorrow night? Maybe tomorrow night he's going to sit here like a bump on the log. And he's not going to move. He's not going to change. Nothing's going to happen in him. That's not your affair. That's God's. But God says to you, put yourself into submission to your husband. Now, you might be here tonight and you're not married yet. Now, listen, because this is serious. Young gals, you better make sure that the day you get married, you have found a man to whom you can submit. Don't find a guy who's just saved. You find a guy who's on his way, hopefully, to becoming a giant for God so that you can submit to him. And you fellows who aren't married, listen, you better make sure that you find a gal who understands what it means to submit to your headship and leadership. And then you get serious about what it means to be a man of God. But will we respond tonight? Maybe there's a man here who, who needs to finally get serious and say, hey, if I want my wife to submit to me, I need to be a man of God. I need to be a leader. What's God have for you tonight?